Tonight at church we're starting a new sermon series in the book of uh, Timothy. So before we dive into chapter 1, I thought it would be good just to give you uh, the heads up on who Timothy is. Uh, Timothy was, according to the Bible, was a, a man who had a, a Jewish uh, mother and a Jewish grandmother and they became Christians under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He lived in a place called Lystra, which is a, a Roman province in Asia. And according to Acts 16, the Apostle Paul visited Lystra and by that point, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother had taught him the scriptures and Timothy himself had become a Christian and he was obviously doing quite well in church and he was leading stuff in church he was well renowned in church and Tim- uh, Paul comes along uh, and they, the elders say to Paul Timothy is a good man why don't you take him on your missionary journeys with you and so for like uh, 15, 16, 17 years Timothy goes with Paul on missionary journeys and according to the scriptures we know that Timothy was left in Thessalonica and he passed to the church in Thessalonica for a couple of years in about AD 50 and the issue there was the people in Thessalonica uh, were lazy and they thought that Christ was about to return so uh, Timothy pastored that church and then he went to Corinth and he pastored a church in Corinth for a few years and if you know your Bibles Corinth is a church where lots of sexual immorality is going on lots of division over gifts and things like that so he was in charge of that church and then he went to Philippi and he pastored that church for a couple of years and then Paul and Timothy were heading to Macedonia and on their way to Macedonia they stopped in a place called Ephesus and Ephesus was like this big uh, city this big multicultural city lots of idols happening as a church there and when Paul and Timothy arrive in Ephesus Paul is absolutely horrified at what's being taught in that church and so he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to pastor the church in Ephesus so Timothy's a man he's about 35, 36, 37 he's got about 10 years of past experience behind him and this is the letter that Paul writes to Timothy to tell him what to do in Ephesus so let's listen to chapter 1 it's on page 8 through 9 let's pray our father we we praise you that you are God who longs for us to know you better we praise you for your word and for your spirit Lord I pray for the work of your spirit now that he would powerfully equip me to speak with boldness and with a clarity that he would penetrate our hearts and our minds that he would illuminate the scriptures to us I pray that he would do a good work in each of us so that we love you more deeply and are more like your son Ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of my um, favourite studios of the 1990s was a band called uh, the Manic Street Preachers. And this is their CD. It's called uh, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. This Is My Truth, Tell Me If you haven't heard it, it's a great CD. I'm, I'm willing to lend it as long as you give it back to me, as it's on my iPod, so that's okay. Um, that thing, this is my truth, now tell me, it kind of sums up our, our postmodern world, doesn't it? See, postmodernism teaches that there's no such thing as absolute truth. So, universal truth or objective truth, it doesn't exist. So, so you can believe something can completely contradict you to me, as long as it works for you. And we've got a generation of a generation Xers and generation Ys who have grown up being taught that you can never know truth. 
And you go to university and you're taught to, to deconstruct every writing and you're told you can never really know what the author means because what you think is true is okay and what I think is true is okay. And the postmodern world means that the truth is under attack, that there's a war going on and what's at stake is truth. And if you go down a postmodern mindset, then you quickly slip into pluralism, you know, the idea that all religions lead to God. Because all religions must be true. Because if it works for you, then, then good on you. And if you go down a postmodern mindset, you quickly lead into tolerance, the most prized possession, you know. I can never say that you're wrong. Because who am I to judge you or, or challenge you as, as to what you think is true? We live in a world where, where truth is under attack everywhere. And truth is under attack in the church as well. You know, so postmodernism and pluralism and relativism and tolerance is undermined truth in the church. And rather than uniting people, it causes division and causes conflict. And when you sit under false teaching, it's not just a, a neutral thing, it's actually a very negative thing. If you don't believe me that truth is under attack in the church, let me read you a, an article from the, the Daily Telegraph, my favourite uh, newspaper. And it's from the uh, year 2000, April the 27th. The journalist's name is Rachel Morris, not a Christian. She writes this. According to the, the spiritual leader of Australia's Anglican Church, Peter Carnley, the crucifixion and resurrection could be viewed as just a story. Peter Carnley has suggested the resurrection is a metaphor and he also questioned whether Christ was the only way to reconcile with God. He said the Bible's limited view was due to the author's limited understanding of other religions. And so the so-called primate of the Anglican Church paraded his doctorate from Oxford University and he said, look, I'm in the 21st century and I know better than the Bible. But you're probably sitting there saying, oh, that's okay because Peter Kahn is a liberal and we're evangelicals and you know, our teachers have been trained at more college and we go to Bible-believing churches and we'd never put ourselves under false teaching. In 1999, I sat up at a convention in Katoomba called the Men's Convention. And I listened to what I thought were brilliant sermons. Brilliant teaching on the book of 1 John, a book all about truth. Uh, the speaker that day was a, a world-renowned Bible teacher. He pastored a church in Cambridge in the UK. And just three months after that convention, that guy left his, his wife and his kids and moved in with another man. His name was Roy Clements. And a few months afterwards he started publishing articles about homosexuality. And he twisted Bible words and twisted scriptures and tried to defend that the Bible says that practicing homosexual is okay. And I guess what wasn't reported in Sydney perhaps was that I know people who left that church because of him and believed him. And today they're nowhere in their faith. Oh, but that's just one example, isn't it? No, no, I could name three or four people I was at Bible college with who trained in an evangelical college and today they are denying scripture. And they're saying that the, 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 the idea that on the cross that Jesus dies as a substitute for our sin is, is abhorrent or there is no judgment day, they say. And those men teach in churches and those churches are growing and people flock to hear them. But this is Sydney. I mean, we are church by the bridge. We are this great Anglican evangelical diocese. 
Do you know how many times I hear people at this church say things like this? The way I see it is, and the way I see it is this, and the Bible is put on one side, and it all comes down to personal opinion. Or people tell me that they've been to, to other churches where they know they don't teach the truth, or they've read other books, or they've listened to certain music, and there's no discernment, and there's no turning on the brain, and there's no questioning about what the, whether what they're hearing is true or not. And you know, my fear is that we're dumbing down sermons, and we're getting our theology by music and songs that we sing, and we listen to anybody and everything and we're growing a church or a generation of Christians if you want who, they don't spot error and they're not bothered by untruth and they're not equipped they're not equipped to contend for the truth and that is really dangerous it's deadly so when Paul was writing to Timothy in Ephesus his main message is there in verse 3 look at it with me As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. He's saying, Timothy, stay in Ephesus, sort out the mess, silence those false teachers. But who are they? Who are these people? Who are the false teachers? Look again at verse 3. They're men who teach false doctrine. They're teachers. They're people who are in the church. And according to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, to be a teacher, you need to be an elder. So they're elders, they're people who stand at the front of the church and they teach. The false teacher is not a cartoon character, it's not the sort of baddie that you can spot a mile away. They're people who once believed the truth, they're people who once taught the truth. That's what it says in verse 6. Some have wandered away from the the good conscience and the, the sincere faith. They've wandered away from those things. To wander is not, it's not a casual thing, it's not an ignorant thing, it's not an unconscious deviation. That word wander actually means they've turned away. They've rejected, they've abandoned. So Hymenaeus and Alexander, verse 20, they were once on the team, they were once evangelicals, they were once Bible-believing teachers, but now they've wandered. Perhaps they call themselves post-evangelicals. Now they use Christian language, they had evangelical roots, but they've moved on, they've matured, they've developed but they're still teaching verse 7 they want to be teachers of the law but they don't know what they're talking about do you spot that? they want to be teachers they love standing at the front they love the power that the teacher has over the people that listen to them it's interesting how does Paul describe himself in verse 1 look at it verse 1 and an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God he said, I didn't appoint myself. No, God commanded me to teach. Or oh, Timothy, my true son, my legitimate son, my genuine son. And he's not a fake. But these false teachers, they're fakes. They look the part, but verse 7, they don't know what they're talking about. You could say they're, they're confident, but they're clueless. Or they're, they speak with great authority, but without the word of God. And it's exactly as Paul predicted. You know, read Acts chapter 20. When Paul is leaving Ephesus and he speaks to the elders in Ephesus, he, he warns them about wolves come with in, wolves in sheep's clothing that will actually distort the truth. And it's happening. And I want to say it's, it's highly, highly damaging. I want to start this whole series of 1 Timothy by really pleading with you and warning you. Just because someone stands up the front and claims to be a teacher... And just because somebody has a title like Reverend or a Right Reverend, 
or just because somebody leads a big church or just because someone leads a growing church or a successful church it doesn't mean they're teaching the truth please be discerning please weigh everything that you hear against scripture in this church and in every church I've got three C's for you tonight for those who like alliteration there are some first C is this content the content of false teaching what is false teaching that's a big question what is false teaching how do you define false teaching what do they teach look again at verse 3 He's to command certain men not to teach false doctrines or literally other things. Not to teach novelties, not to teach new ideas, not to teach progressive thoughts. See, I, I think these are, are the guys who, they, they make promises that God never makes. They promise people things that God never promises. So they promise that every believer will enjoy success or, or happiness or health, but God never promises that. Or they make demands on people. You know, that you must give this amount of money or you must do these things to be saved. They teach false doctrines, false truths, and they devote themselves, verse 4, to, to endless myths and genealogies. And they talk endlessly about stories and ideas and concepts and they talk about God a bit, what God has done and what God will do. But if you sit in their teaching for long enough, you, it's, it's exhausting. It's tedious. Because it's just stories. Or to use verse 7, sorry, end of verse 6, it's meaningless talk. It's empty speech. And if you look over into 2 Timothy, these are the men who, who they quarrel about words, they play word games and they make the word of God say something different they're impressive people they take a word in the Bible and in their hands those words are slippery now, let me be clear Paul's not talking against clarity or thought but he says don't play word games don't get bogged down by genealogies and myths now what sort of words they talk about they talk about words like resurrection or salvation or, or law and they misuse the law. So look at verse 7. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. Verse 8. We know the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. And I think these people are taking the law and they're twisting the law. They're twisting the law to make it say something it doesn't say. What is the law about? The law, according to the Bible, the law is good. Romans 7 verse 12 the law is good but why did God give us the law? God gave us the law for three things the law exposes our sin it exposes how ungodly we really are look at verse 9 the law is not given for the righteous but for the lawbreakers and the the rebels the ungodly and the sinful the law is kind of like like a, a hammer and a piece of glass so the piece of glass is your life and the hammer is a law and it comes smashing into your life and the thing about a hammer and a piece of glass is that it doesn't just leave a dent in the glass, does it? It completely shatters that glass. And when you come face to face with the law, you just see how, how yucky you really are. And it shatters your illusions. You're not good, you're not perfect, you're not righteous. You're ungodly, you're sinful. It exposes what you really like. The second thing the law does, it, it restrains you in some way. It's interesting, that list in verses 9 and 10, 
is basically the commandments number 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9. You know, honour your father and mothers, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. And when you come face to face with God's law, you say, actually I shouldn't do that, because that wouldn't please God. And the third thing the law does, is it actually points you to Christ as, as the law fulfiller, the one who can keep the law. That's the purpose of the law, to, to, to expose your sin, to restrain your rebellion, to point you to Christ. But these false teachers misuse the law. And my guess is that they, they go one of two ways. If you walked into their church, you would hear someone say this. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be saved, you must come to this church. And I want to see you here every week. And you must go to Bible study, otherwise you're not really a Christian. And if you want to be a real real Christian, if you want to be saved, if you want to be certain, you've got to give. And give generously. And if you want to be a real Christian, you you mustn't drink and you mustn't swear. And they, they treat the law as the way that you get your relationship with God. Or they might go to church and they'll say, look, the law is the Old Testament, that, that's been fulfilled. You're free to do what you want any your time. And it's dangerous. What I found really interesting is that Paul never tells us exactly what these guys taught. He never tells us exactly what they taught. Now why, why doesn't he do that? My guess is that if he did tell us exactly what they, ta- they taught, we'd sit there with our list, our tick list, spotting the false teachers. He doesn't want to do that. He wants you to be discerning. Switch on your brain, listen carefully, test everything against Scripture. That's why he says down in verse 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Literally that word sound means healthy or life-giving. He's saying, when you listen, does it bring life or does it bring death? Does it lead you to Christ or away from Christ? Another word used for these false teachers is, um, is gangrenous. Um, when I was doing some research I was doing some research into, into wound healing it was a fascinating subject and I used to spend my every Thursday morning go to the hospital in Oxford and I'd look at wounds and I'd look at corneal wounds in the eye I'd look at skin wounds on the arms I'd look at leg ulcers leg are pretty disgusting uh, they, they're smelly and they're yucky and they take forever to heal the worst type of wound the worst type of wound is actually gangrenous wounds because once gangrene sets in, not only smells, but you know that death is not far away. It spreads so rapidly. And you either amputate or, or you die. And I think that the reason he doesn't spell out the content of the false teaching is because he wants you to spot the consequence. He wants you to see the, the result, and the result is death. It's like gangrene, it spreads and leads to death. So my second C is a consequence the consequence of these false teachers. Let me highlight two. The first one is in verse 4. It's controversies or ungodliness. So these people, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and these promote controversies rather than God's work. It promotes speculation, arguments, debates, quarrels. Rather than uniting people, it divides people. And again, I've seen it time and time again. People teach things that they, it sounds plausible, it sounds good, but what happens is you get factions in the church. And people are saying that they are, are debating non-essential issues like baptism or speaking in tongues or communion, and that becomes an essential. And they quarrel and they speculate and there's controversies. And the thing about that controversies, it leads to ungodliness. And that's why I think in chapter 4, 
Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and his doctrine because your life must match your teaching. Do you want to spot the false teacher? Don't just listen to what they say, watch what they do. Watch their life. That's the thing about false teaching, it does lead to ungodly lifestyle. And again, I've seen that time and time again. You know, as soon as people sit under teaching which says you know, it's okay to date an unbeliever, then very quickly people start to do that rapidly. And as soon as you feed your mind with stuff about, you know, give more and you'll receive much, much more, then people adopt that decadent lifestyle expecting God to give them. But you know, actually after, after years of ministry, I don't think that it's just your doctrine that shapes your lifestyle. I think time and time again your lifestyle shapes your doctrine. Let's go back to Roy Clements. Do you really think that Roy Clements sat down with the scriptures and investigated all the words to do with homosexuality and came to the conclusion that the gay sex, gay practicing sex is okay? And then, and then started to live that way? No. He had the urges, he had the desires, and he wanted to live that way. And so he allowed his lifestyle to shape his doctrine. Same in church today. They take dating an unbeliever again. I'll use my word very carefully here. We know the Bible says it is unwise. Unwise to date an unbeliever. But then you fall in love with somebody. And you know it's not, not wise, but you think you're different to everyone else, so you make the Bible say what you want it to say. That's one consequence of false teaching. It affects your life. Look at the lives of the false teachers. Look at the lives of those who listen. And the second consequence, which is even more damning, is that it undermines grace. It undermines grace. Because grace is the heart of the gospel. Grace is all about what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And when you shift from grace, and when you shift onto works, then you've lost the whole gospel. So I think that's what Paul does in verses 12 to 17. He looks back at his own life and he gives his own testimony. And his, in a word, his testimony is about what? It's about grace. He's like exhibit A of grace shown to sinners. So look what he says, verse 13, I was a blasphemer. I talked against God and I, I persecuted Christians and I was a violent man. I killed and I unwittingly thought that I would be okay because I was a Jew and I had the law. But you know, one day my whole life turned around. It's there in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love in, in Christ Jesus. He's saying, grace, I saw Jesus in his glory and a sinner like me was called home and I didn't deserve that but God opened my eyes and God gave me faith and God put a love in my heart, that's the gospel of grace and if you're here for the first time tonight, the gospel of grace is not too difficult to grasp it's there in verse 15 here's a trustworthy saying it's trustworthy it's acceptable, it's not up for grabs it's not this is my truth, now tell me yours this is the truth Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus, who always existed from eternity, he stepped into our world, he came into the world, he became a man, why? To rescue us, to save us. See, why does a farmer walk into a burning building? To save people, to rescue people. Why does a surf lifesaver go out into the rough waters to save people, to rescue people? Why did Christ come into the world? Not to make us law-abiding citizens but to save us, to save sinners. And that's why when Paul looked at his own life, he, what did he say down in verse 15? 
he says, of whom I am the worst. He's not exaggerating. He's saying, when I think about Jesus, when I think about grace, I'm overwhelmed by my sinfulness and my helplessness. And then I think, well, look, if God could do that for me, if God could take me, given who I was and what I did, and if he's done that for me, then there's hope for everyone, isn't there? And here's a man who grasps grace. You know, no one's too good for God and no one's too bad for God. And that, my friends, is the problem with false teaching. If false teaching in any way undermines grace, if it takes away from a gospel of grace, it's deadly. Utterly deadly. You know, a little bit of wrong teaching, it's a bit like a bit of salt that you put in, a, in, in some water, it flavours the whole thing. I was at a dinner party three weeks ago and they were making a laxa and the wife um, accidentally put some peppermint into the laxa and it tasted disgusting but it flavoured the whole thing and that's a bit like false teaching a bit of false teaching it flavours the whole thing and it takes you away from grace there's no teaching at all and you know if you've really grasped grace if you've really understood that you deserve nothing but Christ died for you have you seen how glorious that gospel is then you'll be rightly angry when teachers lead people away from Christ and away from grace. You know, I sit in my office and people come to me and they're, they're, they're burdened by guilt and they lack no assurance and they've sat under years and years of teaching that tells them to do this and do this and do this and if you don't do this then you can't be saved. And it makes me weep because Christ Jesus came into the world to save people like them, sinners. And like me, a sinner. And perhaps our churches, you know, we, we promote pride so we think that we're better than others and we look down on people and we look out at, at Greenway across the road and we think, oh, people there can't be saved. And we've moved on from grace. And any teaching that brings in the law saying, do this, don't do this, it undermines grace. And that's deadly for people and it's offensive to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the consequence of false teaching. So thirdly, correcting. How do you correct false teaching? What's Timothy to do? Is Timothy told to, to cuddle the teachers? Is he told just to teach against them? Is he told to, to warn your people not to listen to them? Look what he says in verse 3. So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines. He's saying confront them. He's saying command them. He's saying shut them up. Silence them. They must be silenced. You see, Timothy's been given this gift. You, you read about that in verse 18. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's been given a gift. His gift is teaching. It was given by a prophecy. It was confirmed by laying on of hands. And there's a war on and truth is at stake. And so Paul says to Timothy, fight. Fight the good fight. Fight for the truth. Get rid of these teachers. Excommunicate them if you want. Because that's what Paul did. Look at verse 19. Some have shipwrecked their faith and their good conscience. And verse 20, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. He said they shipwrecked their faith. It's a bit like you know when you're in a boat and you're sailing too close to the rocks and your boat smacks onto the rocks and your boat shatters to pieces and you've got lots of little bits of wood floating in the water but you've got no boat anymore. You're shipwrecked. He's saying these people have got no faith anymore. They've shipwrecked their faith. And because of that, Paul is putting them out of the church. Verse 20, I handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. It's the language used in 1 Corinthians as well. He's saying, 
The church is God's dwelling place and the world is Satan's dwelling place. So to hand them over to Satan and say, take them out of the church and put them back in the world because that's where they belong. Because they're not pointing people to Christ. And I'm saying that leaders need to correct error and church leaders need to rebuke and confront and challenge all the theological nonsense that's been taught in this city and around the world. And I know it's hard and I'd much rather just sit down in silence. I want to be popular. I don't like saying the hard things but error must be corrected. Now why do we do that? Why do we correct false teaching? It's fascinating that Paul doesn't say you correct false teaching for the sake of doctrinal correctness. He doesn't say you correct false teaching because it's about being right. No, you correct false teaching, listen carefully, because of people and because of God. You correct false teaching because of people's faith. Look with me at verse 5. Verse 4, rather. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. And the goal of all this, the goal of this command, is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is saying there that the motivation is, is the same motivation that sent Jesus into the world for God so loved the world. The motivation if you want is the same summary of the law love God and love each other. And when teachers don't lead people to love God and don't love each other we're to correct them. You know, when people are led away from Christ and when hordes of people sit in church and sit in pews week in week out listening to teaching that doesn't lead them to love God and love each other and doesn't lead them to the cross and doesn't lead them to Christ it's a loving thing to do isn't it to correct them we should weep we should utterly utterly weep when people have been misled by teachers in the church that's our motivation for correction people's faith we want to love God and the second motivation is God's name it's there in verse 11 the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. The gospel is all about God and God's glory and God's name. And verse 17, Paul bursts out into praise. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. See, Paul knows God and he loves God intimately. He says, this is my God and he's an eternal God and he's king and he's, he's immortal, he's incapable of dying and he's invisible and he's the only God. And so when I see people who are not teaching the truth about God, then I weep. Because his name and his glory and his honour is at stake. And when we see people portraying God as a, a barbaric lawmonger, we should weep. Because that's not the God of the Bible. And when we see people turn away from the only God, and when they see them blaspheme God, and when we hear people say, oh, I, I tried God, but he let me down, because they've been taught by people who made promises about God that God never made, then we should weep. Weep for them and weep for God's name and for God's honour. Friends, the names have changed. They're not called Hymenaeus and Alexander anymore. But throughout the centuries, people have infiltrated the Christian church and truth is at stake. And I want to urge you to do two things as I close. The first thing to do is this, please pray. Please pray for all teachers here at Church by the Bridge. Please pray for me. Pray for Mark, pray for Ben, pray for Des, pray for our BFG leaders, pray for our bishop, pray for our archbishop. Pray for us. That we wouldn't slip into false teaching, we wouldn't slip into law, we wouldn't move away from grace, we wouldn't lead people away from the cross, that we teach what is only sound doctrine. You know, 
I sit there and I get, I get magazines and I get flyers to the post every day offering me new ideas and new theories and it's tempting to believe them. Pray we'd stick to the scriptures and stick to the truth. And the second thing you can do is be discerning. Train yourself to be discerning. I mean, question what I say. Don't just take what I say blindly. Listen to it and say, is that what the Bible says? You know, when you go to other churches, listen carefully, be discerning about what you've been taught. Just because a book is in the, the top ten Christian book of bestsellers doesn't mean it's going to teach you the truth. Don't let your theology about, about God be shaped by the songs that you sing because I mean, it's not true. Feed your mind, equip yourselves to, to discern error. Do a Bible course, make sure your BFGs are grappling with scripture. Do whatever you need to make sure you can discern what is truthful. Why is it important? Because lives are at stake. Eternal life is at stake. And the glory and honour of God is at stake. This is my truth, tell me yours. No, there's one thing that's true, and the, the truth is very simple. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what people need to hear. Christ died for them. He offers them life. And anything that undermines that truth, it must be silenced. Let me pray. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our Lord, we praise you for that glorious gospel. We praise you that you stepped into our time-space world and you humbled yourself. Father, we thank you for the obedience of your son. We thank you that he allowed himself to be tortured and mocked and then nailed to that cross so that our sins can be forgiven and we pray that we as a church would never move on from that gospel of grace Father forgive us for times when we've taught law forgive us for times when we've led people down a works route rather than a grace route and Lord please help us to be clear and faithful and true in everything that we say here at Church by the Bridge and Lord, we do pray for those in this city and throughout this nation that mislead people week in, week out who don't teach what is true and what conforms to the scriptures. And Lord, that saddens us and yet how much more it must sadden you that you sent your son and yet they don't point them to that son. And so Lord, I pray that you would indeed root out those false teachers and you would stop them from teaching and that you would raise up a generation of, of teachers who do handle your word correctly and do preach a gospel of grace and I ask that for Jesus' sake Amen I'm going to take any questions that you might have